0: Welcome to the Starfish Storytellers, the podcast that makes a difference one story at a time by bringing storytelling to life.
1: Three firefighters from the rescue squad arrived at 15 Herd Street for a mission yesterday morning. It was all new to Lieutenant Charles Stamp and firefighters Dave Mayer and John Doobie. Safecrackers are usually on the other side of the law. Police detectives usually handle mysteries the old cooperative bank had a riddle to solve in the basement. What was in the stubborn safe that wouldn't open? Stacks of cash? A trove of coins? Or perhaps this is a reprise of Geraldo Rivera's April 21, 1986 live TV broadcast of the opening of Al Capone's vault. Breathless Geraldo and his crew broke through a 7,000-pound concrete wall at Chicago's Lexington Hall that night and found nothing. Yesterday, 55 minutes after they began, firefighters cracked open the door. With one final pry, stamps sent the heavy door crashing to the basement floor. You could feel it land. A whiff of must coursed through the room. The mystery was solved. Everyone smiled. The locksmith and his son videotaped it. The bank president watched. While Walter Bayless, a bank director, looked on with particular glee. The safe door emblazoned the Mosler Safe Company Boston, stared back at them. The building opened in 1948 and three banks called it home. Middlesex Cooperative Bank, First Federal Savings and Loan, and Butler Bank. Lowell Police used it as a domestic abuse center for five years. Owner Louis Saab sold the building to Lowell Cooperative. The bank wants to renovate, but first, there was the question of the three vaults. The others on the first floor in the basement had opened without a hitch. Armin Jechnavorian, owner of Post Office Lock and Key, opened them with the combinations, swinging the 18-inch thick steel doors to to reveal some shelves, empty cabinets, and a few two-shaped fluorescent bulbs. The third vault would not yield. We don't need these vaults, said Richard Kaufman, the bank president. We'll trash this one, but we'll keep the other two. Bayless brought in the firefighters. These guys trained with the jaws of life, he figured. If someone had become trapped in a bank vault, how would they get out? Eric Navorian briefed the fire crew. Bolts retracted, handle broken, maybe locked inside at the top. This could be quite an ordeal, the locksmith said. We've never done anything like this before, Stamp said. They have brought an air chisel, hydraulic ram, a K-12 saw, various wrenches, a hydraulic door spreader. They decide to peel away the steel frame on the top and the sides. Within a minute, pop, the trim separates from the wall. Stamp works up the right side, the trim squealing, popping, cracking as the metal bends like taffy. The safes have come a long way, says Jek Namorian, a lock history buff of sorts. In India, he says, the emperor used to take his valuables and seal them in a large block of wood, then submerge it in a pool. And they had crocodiles in there on strict food rations, so they were always hungry. When they wanted the valuables, they'd either drug the crocs or kill them. Stamp cranks the hydraulic tool. We can peel away the top here, Mayer says, pop it off and fold it down. Then another loud pop. Good one, Mayer says. Doobie leaves to gather more tools. With a wrench, Doobie removes the six bolts that hold the door to the frame. It takes four minutes. We're in, he says. He's joking. He tries to peel off the outer casing with a crowbar. It rejects his efforts with a sproing. There must be a quick ray in. Someone mentions calling a welder. Firefighters drag in an air compressor, hoses, and SAR attachments. They can't get enough air pressure. A bead of sweat falls from Muscular Doobie's shaved head. He grabs the hydraulic tool, heads back to the door, and pumps, the instrument doing the work for him. He works up the left side. Pop! Eighteen inches higher. Pop! Six inches above that. Pop! He tears out the frame of the suspended ceiling overhead and inserts the hydraulic tool. Crackle! Pop! The framework splits under the pressure. Stamp pulls it half down. The other half is wedged off. Stamp picks up the halligan, a long, thin steel tool, and swings it with the end of the curb spike at the wall along the vault door. As he slams, plaster flies. On one swing, the spike wedges between the steel door and the frame. The door budges, then recedes. He hits the spot again. It budges more. Everyone sees it this time. Whoa, whoa, I think we've got it, Mayor shouts. Ready? Stamp prize the door and it opens a bit. Everybody takes a step back. Stamp prize hard. It flops like a steel wheel forward and onto the ground. A funky smell wafts through the room. Mayor heads inside the vault with a spotlight. Look at the money! More humor. He finds wood shelves, moldy carpet rolls, an old desk, five banker's boxes filled with vintage accounting equipment finger dial phones. Its document vault, Jeff Navorian says, probably last opened in the 1980s. No riches. On the backside of the door, a warning is handwritten. Do not close this door.
0: Hello. My name is Liana Henry, and welcome to the Starfish Storytellers. I'm the CEO of the Black Dog Group, a Marcom and project management firm headquartered on the East Coast of the U.S. in quaint colonial Bedford, Massachusetts. I'm your host and passionate about storytelling, and I'm actually on a mission to raise up the next generation of storytellers. We've named ourselves the Starfish Storytellers after the Starfish Story. The moral of the Starfish Story is based on the power of one. No matter how big the challenge, each action we take makes a difference and has an impact. One step, one starfish, or one story at a time. Every episode, we welcome a new storyteller who will share their story meant to inspire and connect with you. Then we break it down and offer tips for any listeners who are ready to tell their own stories. So thanks for tuning in. Now let's get started. Today's episode is about PR and journalism, storytelling across the media. With me today is Tom Zupa, Senior Account Executive from John Gilfoyle Public Relations and former Managing Editor for The Son of Lowell. I am so excited that you are here. I am so happy we get to talk shop. So thank you and welcome.
1: Thank you, Lana. I really appreciate the invitation.
0: You're welcome. I'm glad you're here. So we would love to hear you introduce yourself. You just shared this amazing story with us, but please <laughs> tell our listeners who are you.
1: So my name is Tom Zupa, and as you said, I, I work at John Guilfoyle Public Relations. Uh, I had a very long career in journalism at a number of stops. Uh, my last stop was in Lowell at The Sun, and that's sort of how we met one another years ago. Um, and a few years back, you know, local journalism started not being what it once was, and I was one of the many people who all of a sudden found themselves in search of another job. So considered a lot of options. Um, and just kind of found this wonderful new home at at, uh, John Guilfoy Public Relations. John's a former journalist. We have a lot of former journalists on staff. We work uh, almost primarily with municipal government, so town schools, police, fire, and we're sort of that extra hand when they need it. So if it's internal communications, external communications, crisis management, um, we're just sort of that extra hand, somebody to talk to, somebody to consult with. Uh, John started the company 10 years ago, um, himself and five clients. And we now have about 300 clients. We work in 11 states. We have a video division and a web marketing division and a spinoff training academy to train communicators. So it's uh, it's been a wonderful change of pace. It is wonderful working in a growth industry.
0: Nice. Nice. And that's really good to hear as far as public relations is concerned, mm-hmm. you know, and um, you know, kudos to your, to your, uh, to your boss for launching and, and growing the way he has so good for him. Mm-hmm. Um, So I really loved the story. Um, You know, I think we typically have folks come in and share personal stories. We've only had a few people come in and share an actual story. So um, where did you, you said that was one of your favorite stories. Like how, mm-hmm. like, where did you hear that story or how long have yeah. you known that story?
1: So this is actually a story from the son, one of my former colleagues, Dave Perry, who was probably one of the three best storytellers I've ever worked with in my career. Uh, Dave just had a way with words yeah. and, um, we got wind of that story that day and he decided just to go out and. Let me check this out and see what it was. and and just Dave had all the right words uh, on that day. I, I love the story so much because it it uses so much of storytelling. You know, it's I always tell people you don't write with your pen. You write with your eyes and your ears and and all of your senses. So in that story clip, you get you get the smell of the room. You get the feel of of the door striking the ground you get the intensity, you, you sort of have a sense of place. And when you're able to pull all those things together as a storyteller, the reader gets a little bit transported. It, you sort of, you can forget time, you know, and all of a sudden it's five minutes where you're not thinking about your job or what's coming up for dinner that evening or errands you have to run just sort of, it takes you out of that, that your regular life. And to me, those are always the most refreshing stories to read. I mean, that's one of many, many narrative stories. I've read of these, but that continues to be one of my favorites because it does bring all the elements together.
0: And I mean, you really did take us on a journey. You know, I I could feel myself really concentrating when you were telling Mm -hmm. the story because I was like, "What's Mm going to happen next?" You know, and there was such a buildup of, you know, going through the layers of the vault and, you know, the sounds. And so it was very well told, but, you yeah. know, you're a storyteller. Um, you well, I,
1: I, from... I, not my words though. Those are Dave no, words. i no, no, I'm just... no, I understand <laughs> that. But
0: I think, I think you come from a background of being a storyteller. And I mm-hmm. think when you are a storyteller, you know how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, we both come from a background in journalism and PR, my, my, my graduate degree is, um, is in PR. And, um, so I was, I was reading up on it and, you know, storytelling journalism is storytelling with a purpose. You know, (laughs) there's a purpose for when you're telling a story and, you know, it's on the journalist to verify, collect information, and then Mm -hmm. present it in a way that is going to make for a good story. And, you know, journalists really are Mm -hmm. those who, are the eyes and ears for the situations, the circumstances, the issues that we all face. And they present it in a way that really helps everybody be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. And PR, you know, public relations, you know, you're meant to create this really relevant narrative and you're trying to get Mm -hmm. that emotional response from the audience Mm -hmm. and in essence, trying to get them to act. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think there's, there's such a there's such a need today for really good storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know from on a corporate level, um, you know, there are uh, big companies now are dedicating just entire web pages just to their stories, whether they're news stories, whether they're, uh, employee stories, whether they're customer stories, because s- stories mm-hmm. sell, I mean, you know, it's, it's how you really get to know, um, you know as as the audience, it's really how you get to know the storytellers through their mm. stories,
1: and I think another very important thing for storytellers is you have to be able to get close, okay? Dave was in the room that day. That's how he told that story. If you're writing for a client, it's important that you you're able to connect that client to the consumer or the reader so that they they have that understanding. If you, a vague if you're not using clear language, if you are scattered in your writing, it doesn't deliver as well. You can PR writing is is much different than journalism. It uses a lot of the same skills. I I use so much of of my my journalism experience on my job because I'm writing and reporting every day and Mm -hmm. and thinking and planning as well. So Mm -hmm. um the writing can be a little more limited at times, but um It's still, you know, I try to be a little creative when I can be. Mm -hmm. Um, We're serving different audiences. The journalist serves the reader. And while we may be serving our clients, sometimes it's how you serve your clients and having them understand that clear communications and effective communications is really how you want to, to, you know, engage with Mm -hmm. the community. I mean, PR is, is a slow game. It really is. You know, it's yeah. one step at a time. You know, a mar- marketing um, is buy this, buy this right now. And then two weeks later, we're going to sell you something else. Um, PR is is about reputation management and brand awareness. And no one press release ever changes that. It's an ongoing part of the puzzle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I found it as a comms manager, you know, it's, it's sort of the breadcrumbs, you know, that mm-hmm. get you to where you want to go, um, you know, and having a client or an employer, if you work for an employer who understands that it is tied to brand awareness and that it mm-hmm. is a slow process and that they're, they're in for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is key to making the work that you do as a PR practitioner and professional um, most successful.
1: Right. Right. What we, we advise clients, we tell them this is, this is a long effort. If you have been damaged reputationally, it is a very long way to get back. And, you know, for example, if you have a client who has had a crisis that needs to be addressed immediately, um, it's not going to be fixed the next day. It's going to be fixed over the course of weeks and months. And that good PR and consistent PR positions you as being successful. And And I always try to tell clients, you want the bad thing to be the exception and not the rule. You want to have a long stretch of really good positive views so that when a bad thing happens, and it always happens, the bad thing is now. Oh well, geez, they're a really good organization. They know what they're doing. This is an exception as opposed to, oh my God, not that again. You know?
0: Right. 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 And that sort of acceptance of you we all make mm-hmm. mistakes and right. And that, you know, having really good PR helps mm-hmm. you sort of come out on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um and, to, and
1: and honestly, in, in crises, some clients don't understand that at first. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're in, they're in the hole. They're they are really worried about next steps and like no, take responsibility. You know, yep. taking yep. responsibility shows leadership. Yep. Promise yep. how you're going to fix something.
0: Yeah.
1: And fix it, and and it's it is an ongoing process, and, and it's it's not something everyone in a crisis grasps initially, but um, it is it mitigates long-term reputational damage. Yeah, yeah,
0: it doesn't just blow over. You know, I had a situation as a, as a comms professional that there was somebody on a team that, you know, publicly lied and was sued and it impacted the organization. And, um, you know, it, it took a lot of having a solid and they didn't have a crisis, like they didn't have a crisis Uh protocol like they didn't have a crisis crisis protocol so we needed to craft that develop that and then put that into practice Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um you know it took a long time many years actually to come out on the other side fully and Mm -hmm. when i say that i don't mean like it was just years of this difficult thing i mean it was you know progressively got better Mm -hmm. but um but like you said it Mm -hmm. wasn't like a a, it didn't happen overnight Mm -hmm.
1: and i think this is perhaps where we have a little bit of an advantage over someone who's purely a PR practitioner, because we've been on the other side of the fence, yep. you know, we've asked the tough questions and we know we can anticipate journalist questions and community reaction or stakeholder reaction. Yes. So, you know, to be able to tell a client, no, this is what's going to happen. These are the questions you're going to have. These are the questions you better be prepared to answer, you know, mm-hmm. and this is going to be your fallout is extremely valuable.
0: Yep. And to think that you could dodge the the press mm-hmm. was, you know, that was sort of an like there was like an awakening for them. You know, it was like, you're not mm-hmm. going to. So let's have a plan on how we're going to engage with them and communicate with them um, because they're going to want to know.
1: Um, and, and, and it is extremely difficult for, for a leader in that situation to stand up and take the fire. Mm-hmm. but that's really a piece of leadership mm-hmm. and, well, and, and it's
0: hard because if it's somebody on your team, mm-hmm. you, you know, but just by default, by the, being the leader, it's your fault too. Right. So you do have to stand mm-hmm. up and take that. So, um, so you, you have been in PR now a few years, um, but you had a long career in journalism. Um, you told us a little bit about why the, why the move, um, So what are your, what are you mostly doing these days with, with your comms work? I mean, are you doing primarily crisis comms or are you doing everything or?
1: Well, and that's one of the joy we're, we're a mid-sized agency. We have 17 full-time employees. So, um, we become experts on a lot of things Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly. So, um, my day can be anything from writing press releases to client outreach to managing a crisis. Um, a little sales component. I never thought I'd be involved in sales, but here I am. And um, it, it, some of it's long-term planning, some of it's campaign planning. Um, you know, if we've had a lot of success with communities that are trying to build a new town hall or a police station or something like that, and working with them in, on a focused campaign to make sure the voters and the stakeholders have all the information they need. So it can be any any number of things. Um, I had, I was telling somebody, I had one morning uh, last week where in the first three hours I had, um, internal comms, external comms on a crisis in three hours. So, so it's, uh, it, it, it's very, it, no, and, it, and it's very much like a newsroom. I think that that's sort of, you know, one of the other wonderful things about working here is, is you do have that mix of things. No one is doing any one thing here it solely, um, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's very, it's interesting. You know, we can have very, very slow days and all of a sudden, you're hitting the floor just like in the newsroom, and 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 uh, rushing off to something, mm-hmm. or 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 handling uh, a client who has a you know something huge going on right then. So
0: yep, and you have to be ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of newsrooms, uh, you know, you spent a lot of your career as managing editor and senior editor mm-hmm. at the Sun of Lowell. Um, I knew it as the Lowell Sun, but I know that that changed. It was a daily. Mm-hmm. So you know, I had been a news editor at a weekly, and I had been a uh, pr- publisher of a monthly, and I felt, and we had, it was different. We had our own crushing deadlines, but I can't even imagine what it must have been like to have to put out and churn out that daily news. Like, what? How did you do it? I mean, what were there tools that you used to kind of keep your team moving and managing all of that? I mean, how how did you do it?
1: First, you really do need a good team. I, I have to start there. This is—it's never you talk about the the CEO or the leader being the face. Well, when you are in senior management, newspaper, you're sort of the face of the newspaper, and you're the people—you're the person people think is involved in everything when you're really not. A lot of the day-to-day operations, you know, there's, there's a level of 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 editors, whether it's assignment desk, copy desk, um, layout, who are all involved in that process, and you you all do have to work together as a team. So you know, it's planning every day, mm-hmm. at least twice a day, just sort of figuring out what we we're going to do that. And that was our news cycle. But um, the thing about journalism is it does not matter what your plan is. Mm-hmm. You need, you need to have, have plan B, plan C, and be able to throw all of those out, <laughs> need be. Um, I spent a lot of my time uh, early on in my career, on copy desks, doing pagination, trying to hit deadlines. So that's a really great training, knowing that you need all of this content by this time. And now you can go do. Now you can go do all of that work. So important stories are read. Uh, they're getting enough attention. Um, it's the planning of who's going to do what when, how it fits into their schedule. Who's going to work weekends? Who's working nights? Um, it's sort of this entity that has a life of its own. And again, throwing something out because you just have to and move on to something else mm-hmm. because stuff happens.
0: Yep. Yep. Just wanted to pick your brain on this. So I, I one of my last roles prior to launching uh, the company that we're, we have now was I was a comms manager. And one of the things that I found a little bit challenging was um, capturing and elevating the executive voice. Um, you know, I I was lucky enough to have a, a supervisor manager who thought the way I did, which is, you know, a company's brand, the the CEO, their voice has to be their their presence needs to be elevated. Um, but I over my career of marketing and communications, I've worked with a fair amount of CEOs, and each person's very unique style, and they had, you know, they they knew what they wanted to say, they knew how they wanted to portray themselves. And, you know, sometimes we needed to advise on best practices and, you know, this is your brand and, you know, do you really want to be seen that way? So sometimes our agendas maybe would clash a little bit. You know, when you're dealing with a with a client, um, you know, what are some strategies or tactics even that you're using to sort of elevate their story and, um, but but at the same time giving them what they want? even Mm -hmm. if maybe the agendas may not totally align.
1: Well, point one is I think when a company hires an agency, they're hiring the expertise of the agency. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, we both gave up pride of ownership when we went into public relations, you know, anything we write doesn't belong to us. Anything we do, it belongs to the client. So honestly, at the end of the day, if you want to say red and the client says blue, it's blue. That said, I I like to kid that we have a lot of smart clients because they tend to know what they don't know. (laughs) And they know they're not essentially the best communicators. And I have actually had a client tell me, gave me some content, he said, can you just make me sound smart? Of course he's a favorite client because I so I try to do, you know, and and there's some who who you know want to change words or phrase, and that's fine. Um, I think for the most part, our client base understands that we're there to to be that expertise you you do have people who push back on language and and then you do have that discussion you know this is why we think you should do this this way or say this in this particular way and here's the rationale behind it um with the understanding that they might push back from you and i think it's healthy for the most part to have those discussions i know sometimes when i'm writing for a client um i'm I get feedback which is like, "Wow, this sounds just like me," and I'm like, "Well, that's totally lucky because I don't know how you <laughs> how you sound." Um, but as you develop clients over time, um, you learn where their frameworks are. Um, I won't name any specifics, but I can tell you, they have clients who have very narrow views about about what they want to sound like. And so for me, it's a matter of pouring that in, you know, what they want to say in, in, into that frame. Others are like, nope, this is great, you know, and, and pushing out. I think one strategy is to encourage the client to set themselves apart.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: I, I, and I'll give you just a very specific example from last year. We had one of our communities had um very unfortunate anti-Semitic incident, at which point it, community rallies and they're going to have a a community event on the common to to create the event and express solidarity Mm
0: -hmm. you and
1: i have been at enough of these events to know roughly what they're going to sound like and look like
0: right
1: and um the client reached out to me and said um the select board chair has to make some comments and she's really not sure um of what she wants to say you think you could just draft up some ideas and again knowing that that area and exactly what's going to be saying, I want her to sound different. I want her to be the standout. If TV is covering it that night, I want her statement to be the one they pick up on. So I actually wound up doing some research about the client and their background and was able to position her story about why her family moved to town, the wonderful things about the town, why this is the exception, but also why it's important we all get together and and do what we can to make sure this doesn't happen again. And it was a very different take on the very sort of formulaic things that sometimes you hear at those events. So um, that's that was my thinking in that. And um, again, as the back and forth, the response I got was, well, I'm going to tweak a couple of things, but okay. And I'm like, great.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's always a mm-hmm. great feeling when your stuff is used. <laughs> right. Oh, well, well, absolutely. I had... Um... I had a, a situation with a piece that I that that I had done the copy for, and I had had a designer do the design for it. And the company came back and said, "You know, we want to change the design. Can you fix this?" So uh, they said we'll have some edits for you. And when I got the edits back, they were pointing at certain design elements, and they had maybe changed like four words, but they kept like almost all the copy. And I was like. <laughs> wow. Okay. I nailed it. Clearly I got what they wanted yeah. me to say. <laughs> yeah. So that felt really, really good.
1: Yeah. And, and this is, again, we talk about the journalism versus PR, yeah. you know, we, we, we take public success at a yeah. newspaper, you know, for us now, a client gives you wonderful feedback. he's like, that's, that's your day.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like, okay, I, I was able to do what you asked me to do. I was able mm-hmm. to capture your voice and your story. So I, I got it. Right. Well, going back to what you just said about the importance of comms training, um you know, if there's if we have a listener out there who is a budding PR professional or a budding journalist and they want to you know, go into and, you know, engage in the craft, uh you know, what advice do you have for them both from sort of the professional standpoint but also from the storytelling standpoint? Um
1: curiosity is number 1. Mm -hmm. You have to, you have to wonder about the world around you. You have to wonder about what people do and how they do it and why they do it. Um, and then be able to have the skills on the other end to tell people what that is and, and how, how that affects them. Why should you read this? Um, you know, there's, there's a difference in, in writing, you know, most journalists write reports. You know, who, when, where, why, how, piece of it. Um, Storytellers, they're about character and dramatic arc if there is one and sense of place. And I think, you know, in, in the story that I read earlier, there's all of those elements in there, which is why it's a little transportive. The best analogy I can give is if you were going to write an obituary, how would you write it? And if you were going to write a eulogy, how would you write it? I always look at the eulogy as the chance to have that person there one more day. So if you stood up in, in the church to give a eulogy, for example, if I was giving your eulogy, I would be talking, a, I wouldn't be talking about, she did the bill of green and she founded a company. You know, I'd be telling about Liana, the person, you know, the, her kindness, her generosity, you know, the things she did in the community, um, you know, Everybody loves their kids. Everybody loves their family. Everyone's a hard worker, but why and how? You know, give me an example. Tell tell me what makes someone a family man. Tell me what makes someone a great cook. Tell me what makes someone a big Red Sox fan. That's far more important because that really brings that person alive one more time. In a PR sense, it's the same type of thing. Um, You want to have that connection, you know? It isn't just enough to say, "This is a really good program," but why and what does it mean, and what's the impact that you can have um, on a school community? We work with a lot of school districts. If I have a school story where there's a great program, I want to be able to tell people, "No, this is important, and here's the impact that it's had. You know, here's here's the tangible results. Here are how these students have succeeded because of this program." Um, very, it's it's very different, but it's that next level. Um, there's a lot of journalists who don't ever want to get into the storytelling piece of it, or PR professors probably don't want to get into the storytelling piece of it, but it's, it's hard (laughs) to be a storyteller. You have to have all of your senses available. You fill notebooks with content. And then, and the best part of that is you throw out 90% of it. So what you're doing is you're mining for gold. You throw out all the rocks and you keep the gold nuggets. Right. and the gold nuggets are your story and that's it's a lot more work it's a lot more thinking it's a lot more sweat equity it's a lot more stress but the product on the other hand is just is wonderful
0: so much better and that's what people want mm-hmm. you know they want the story mm-hmm. I, I think you know, you know that's what the audience wants
1: well and, and just to go back to pr one more second you know it's it's a marketing for example there's a big difference between a car company telling you buy our car to some to a friend, trusted friend, saying to you, "Geez, I just got this car. It's really great. You should look at it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, all the difference in the world. It's personal. It's one of my and the, and the more personally you can be, um, more up close you can be yeah. with sources and content. Um, it just elevates you. It'll elevate the reader if you're a journalist. It'll elevate the client if you're in PR.
0: Yep. One of the things that I did, and maybe we'll start wrapping up with this, is you know, one of the things that I did when I had the green was we would do branded advertising branded storytelling mm-hmm. um and you know somebody would place their ad but then they would have the promo article right. there and some of it some of it was salesy of course i mean that's that's what they wanted but a lot of times it gave me the opportunity to actually tell you know a tiny little story about something or someone that expanded so it wasn't just an ad in in a newspaper you know you got to know who this was um, and, and, you know, what they were, what they were about. And, and I think that was, that was key. So, well, that's about all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much for being here, Tom. It, it's been wonderful to talk about PR and journalism and, um, and just get to spend this time with you. So I appreciate you being here.
1: It's just been wonderful catching up with you, Liana. Thanks for having me again. And, uh, hopefully we can talk soon
0: that would be great. And to our listeners, whether you hear us locally from the BTV studios in Bedford, Massachusetts, or across the globe on such podcast channels as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Prime, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Happy storytelling.